everyone. We are blessed to be here. And we have my amazing partner in office hours, Michael Diamonds in the house. What's going on, Mikey D? Good thing. How are you? Good to see you this morning. Uh, it's great to see you as well. And I'm so blessed because one of my favorite people is joining us today. And he uh, is a well-crafted individual. Everything about him reeks of class. And uh, one of the finest individuals when people meet him, they know he's elevated in his frequency and vibration. And he's an expert in something that I believe to be essential in everything that you do from being a parent to all your professional pursuits to being a good friend as well. And it's the ability to create a well-crafted story. And the reason that telling stories, Mikey D, is so important is because that's how we learn. From the beginning of time, uh, whether they were pictures in the sand or on the wall or on the sandstone, that is how we taught individuals and carried information into the future. And we improved upon that information and improved upon the stories as well. I want to welcome to Office Hours an amazing friend and an amazing storyteller, the well-crafted Jimmy Hayes Nelson. Good morning, gentlemen. It's so good to start my day with you guys. Well, tell me about it. It's amazing. And it's so nice to be on the East Coast where I feel like my half of my day's over by the time office hour starts. And sure. poor, poor Mike's there, there at five in the morning, uh, but he is a warrior among warriors. So Coach Jimmy, uh, you know, there's one thing to tell stories, but there are components of a well-crafted story. Uh, what's the difference between telling a story and having a well-crafted story? Man, I think the difference between somebody that just tells a story, I think we've all been telling stories since we were kids, or like you said, like cavemen on the wall. I think what makes a well-crafted story, and sometimes the thing that people overlook the most, is the vulnerability piece. I love the fact, Mike, that you were on. when you, I didn't know you were going to be on today. And as I thought about this, so many people want to skip over the vulnerability piece. And so for an example, like okay, you and I have known each other for about a year now. And I got to thinking, why was I so drawn to want to work with you? Because like, I know all, all your accolades. And you know what it was? It was when you told the story about losing all your money, right? And I thought, you know what? As an entrepreneur, I know worlds go up and down and up and down. And if I were ever to find myself at rock bottom, I want to tie myself to the guy that knows how to get out of the hole, not just the guy that's been at the top of the mountain. And then Mike getting to know you, same thing. You you went through your story of hitting rock bottom and that's why people call you on a regular basis because when everything goes wrong, you're the pe person to get them out in an intervention. And I just think that well-crafted story is the willingness to be vulnerable, to tell people when you've messed up. And I think stories can do one of two things. They can, they can either be a teaching moment or they can be a warning. They can either help us achieve something that we want to do, or it can help us like avoid a mistake that somebody else has made. And I think that's the piece a lot of people like glaze over. Jimmy, when we met on office hours, the one thing I loved when we started chatting um, in Vegas was how you lost all the weight and you didn't realize by losing all the weight, you would then go into what you're doing and inspire so many people. There's a there's a thing that I've found, and I think you nailed it, and Dave nailed it. I, when I started coming out and telling my story, a lot of people feel there's a lot of shame sometimes mm -hmm. from our mistakes. 
So when you're working with someone, how do you how do you teach them to move through the shame? Because some people don't like our stories. Some people right. don't like our body boy. Like it was me with addiction, right? I started opening up. They're like, dude, 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 don't talk about that. You'll never get a job. People will know you're a crackhead. Do you know what I mean? So how do you teach people to step in the vulnerability and have the courage to be open and vulnerable to help others? Yeah, I think that what people don't realize, so if I talk about my story as being a former 100-pound overweight, three-time college dropout, talk about moving back in with my parents at 22, I still don't enjoy telling that part of my story. There's still something embarrassing about it, even though I'm on the other side. But what I tell people is there is a silent army of people that have gone through something similar that you've gone through that thinks they're the only one. And you have an opportunity to be a champion for this silent army that is suffering, that thinks nobody can relate with them. And so whether it's my weight loss, whether it's you with addiction, whether it's Dave with losing his business and his money or whatever, what we do when we when we kind of fall off the cliff or, or make a mistake is we tend to isolate, right? We're going to try to fix something on our own. We're really, that's the time we should be reaching out, but we can't reach out to somebody if we don't think anybody else can understand us. And so where Dave tells his story or, or all the three of us tell our stories, we are giving hope to a world that desperately needs it. I always said when I was in the health and fitness world, I said, we don't sell health and fitness. We don't sell uh, making money. We give hope to a world that desperately needs it. And that's what we're giving when people, I get telling the vulnerable part, telling the embarrassing part is never fun. But when we don't make it about us and go, okay, this thing can just be a tragedy because we went through it. Or how do we use this? to really make a difference in the world is when we take ownership of our mistakes and put it out there so somebody else can win what we might have lost at a time. And then beyond illuminating and being vulnerable so that we have an emotional connection uh, with people because people do buy on emotion for logical reasons, yeah. there's a lot more techniques that need to be practiced in storytelling. And a well-crafted story has to be organized in a certain manner, has to have several components in understanding credibility and also value and also the ever-changing uh, emotional time and value that's inherent in uh, what people are listening for. Recently, you just judged a three-day great American uh, speak-off uh, with one of my friends, uh, Grant Cardone, and you got to listen to tons and tons of stories. Uh, what were some of the takeaways that you had? Because I know when I do, uh, for example, two minute drill, which Mike Diamond has been on as well. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's amazing. We're in, you know, season eight of elevator pitch. We're in season six of two minute drill. I probably heard more pitches than you've even heard stories. Probably. And for me, I'm just amazed. Like, doesn't anyone, you know, listen and, ask you know at least in their pitch like ask for something yeah. like every single episode someone forgets to ask what were some of the takeaways that we can encourage people with from the great experience that you had with the great american speak off yeah it was so interesting watching these people having a minute sometimes two minutes to, to tell a story with some kind of movement and then have an ask at the end and um what i found you know, as I was coaching some of these people along as well, and it's easy to do specifically in a pitch situation, in a high pressure situation, is they would come out and talk at their audience, not with their audience, right? And that's one of the things that when I moved from being a performer and an actor to a public speaker, to a speaking coach, I had to make that adjustment is knowing 
how do you make this conversational? How do you, whether you're talking, I'm talking to the two of you, or I'm talking to a room of 5,000, how do I keep that conversational? How do I offer something vulnerable, show where I have overcome it, but then that call to action. I think about this every time I'm in front of an audience, whether it's two or 2,000 is, what do I want somebody to do at the end of this story? And sometimes that's just a mindset shift. Sometimes that's just taking action in their community. It's not always a business thing or an opt-in thing. Um, like you and I were talking yesterday, sometimes you need a well-crafted story to change the behavior in your children or something with a loved one. But what is the ask at the end? After you've already taken them through the story, you've kind of taught the lesson, the parable, right? Um, what is the specific, and make it specific. What's the specific thing you want the audience to do at the end of sharing your story? Great. Jimmy, can I ask one, one last question? Okay. Yep, the one thing that you we did together, we connected straight away. And I think there's a component that people miss. And, and I remember years ago, I was doing stand-up comedy. The guy said, look, if you get a minute, two minutes, it doesn't matter who's in the room. Just make those two minutes, connect with the audience, make mm -hmm. it important. And you understand that we connected. How do you teach people to relax and connect? That's, That's great. Beautiful. So for me, I, I'm going to use being on a, on a physical stage a, as an example. Um, I, and this is something I adjusted, performer to speaker. I take a minute right before I say my first words, and I find somebody pretty quick that's giving me great energy, and I say my first words to one person. And where I find, and I, I fall into this trap sometimes, if I'm talking over the heads of somebody and I look back at the tape, I watch tape just like an athlete does, and I'm like, I wasn't connected with that audience. And it always goes back to, let me find Mike because he's giving me great, great energy, and let me start that first line to Mike and then move throughout the audience. And you know what else it does? It, 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 it makes your audience play up because they see, oh, he's talking to us, not at us. So he may be coming to me next and everybody leans forward a little because they don't know when that comp. And I'm not saying you're going to get a call and response, but they realize you're having conversations with people in the audience. And for me, it really grounds me because it takes it from a presentation back to a conversation. Well, if you want to learn what people are listening for and how to tell a well-crafted story, go to storywellcrafted.com. My friend at the coach, Jimmy, he is helping people communicate value and understand that connection. Jimmy Nelson, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thank you, gentlemen. See you soon. Take care. Great to see Take you. Uh -huh, you oh, too, celebration. Right. Oh, that's Mike. good, Mike. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> He's amazing. All right. We have our next friend coming on here. Diana Helfond is here, and she is right here in New York City, Parallel Learning, ParallelLearning.com. And uh, welcome, Diana, to Office Hours. Thank you. Excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you as well. And you are the co-chair of the Apollo Circle uh, for the Met. And... Uh, Having some challenges at a young age has led you and your dedicated team uh, to help many others in how we learn. So we were just talking about people learn from stories and having a well-crafted story, uh, but each individual has their own frequency, their own understanding uh, to connect to. What are some of the things that you've learned, not just from uh, your own personal experience and experiences with your personal challenges in learning, but how to create a better conduit to learning um, in what you're doing to help others uh, with what you've learned. 
Yeah, well, I should start off by saying uh, the Met is a very small part of my day to day, but what I mostly spend all my time on is I founded a company called Parallel Learning, which is all centered around helping uh, different learners and thinkers thrive. So we work with K-12 school districts around the country. Um, I'm, like I said, founded that company, CEO of that company. Um, we work with 80 plus districts at this point with their most complex and high need students. So anyone who has a learning difference, um, a thinking difference, mental health challenge, really all of the kids who have IEPs um, in the public school system, that is the population of students that we are here to help. Um, to go back to your initial question, I have my own personal story of struggling. So I was actually one of those students at a point. Um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD at a very young age, um, at about seven years old, which is extremely unique. Most kids are diagnosed when they start to kind of transition from reading uh, or learning to read to actually reading to learn, which is around nine years old. Um, some kids don't ever get diagnosed or at least, you know, don't get diagnosed until they're really struggling. They're years behind in core academic subjects, struggling with very severe mental health challenges. So um, was really unique opportunity for me to kind of think about my path, which was extremely different. I was lucky enough to have parents that were very on top of it, um, had done a lot of research in this space from a young age, uh, was getting a lot of extra support. And again, that's just not the norm for most kids across America. That's very hard to find the resources. Um, expensive to find resources and the school district, depending on what districts you're in, there's a very large spectrum um, of you know services and support you can receive, especially as a parent navigating this uh, for your child. So all that's to say I was super motivated to really think about how I could turn my own story into more of a reality for more students across America. And that was ultimately how Parallel was born coincided very nicely with the start of the pandemic. And of course, so many kids were not getting served at all. Um, and so it was a really unique opportunity. But I think just to touch on my own personal story, you know, I've obviously seen it firsthand, even receiving so much support, tutors, early diagnosis, so on from a young age, I still, you know, had a, a tricky time navigating the school system, recognizing that, you know, classes were not made for my unique learning style. Um, and so it's always been kind of an uphill battle, but I think for me, one of the greatest takeaways has always been really leaning into what my strengths are and trying to work around those weaknesses, right? Recognizing that like, yeah, probably going to take me all night if I'm going to read every single word of every textbook I'm assigned in college, but routes like getting to know all of my professors really well, really engaging in like the face-to-face -face part of things, going to every office hour for this call um was a huge win for me um and by the time i had gotten to college i feel like i had figured out like circumvent the normal school system um and ultimately carried those skills into my my real life now which i feel like have served me probably frankly better than reading every word of every textbook <laughs> <laughs> diana first of all thank you i was undiagnosed with dyslexia and adhd and my teachers were horrible. They'd get me up in class in fourth grade and make me read to the class and everyone would shame me. And it led me into drinking really young and getting into drugs really young. Um, the work you're doing is just absolutely incredible. Thank you, because so many people struggled like I did and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And then I went to acting school and they're like, oh, you're dyslexic, dude. <laughs> like, what? So um, how do you try to remove 
one thing I've found as well with this kind of work uh, is some parents are a little naive and they don't realize their kids are struggling. And I feel like that there's something wrong with them because their kids have like, like I did dyslexia. And even to this day, my parents are like, you're not dyslexic, you didn't pay attention. Yeah. So how do you push past that and re-educate people? Like, you know, it's not, it's not a problem. What it is, we have to, they have, we have different ways of functioning and open their minds up to new possibilities because kids stay stuck because parents are a little ignorant of not realizing that you need to get them help. Totally. Um, yeah, there, there's so much to unpack there, right? Like that is the, the common story for so many families. I will note like schools, every teacher who's teaching in America has the best intentions, right? They wouldn't go into the field of teaching if they didn't care deeply about the students. The problem is every student learns and thinks in so such a diverse way that to actually have the like professional development to know how to teach specifically students who have very severe learning differences, it just, it's impossible, right? And to like, when you're already an overburdened teacher, to have like, to really hone in on every single student's unique styles and so on, like to give them that individualized support, especially like everything that we went through with virtual learning during COVID and so on, you know, it's impossible, right? And so like, I don't want to say that, this, like, let's just put it this way. I don't think the school system in its current form is set up to really support the students and those parents the best way. And so it, it really, the onus falls on parents in many cases to really be the advocate for their kids. And to your point, if the parents don't have the, the education around it, you know, those students, that's how you, you know, end up with kids who are years behind before anyone intervenes on their behalf. And maybe it's the parent that um, intervenes, maybe it's the student themselves that advocates, you know, that they're different than their classmates, or maybe it's the teacher that steps in, right, or the school. So um, it's a whole host of different ways that, like, ultimately kids end up do getting the support they need, uh, hopefully. But for us, you know, it has been a lot around, you know, telling my own personal story. Like I said, you know, I've gone through the system, I've struggled myself, even with the kind of gold standard, best care support and so on, which again, was super lucky to receive from a young age, still was not like perfect or easy, right? I wasn't like, just all of a sudden had a tutor for reading and all of a sudden was like, a, could read at the pace of my classmates, right? Like I still couldn't do that. <laughs> so that's where like a lot of the coping actually, ultimately you figure out yourself. And I hear these incredible stories, frankly, like being in startup community and founder community and so on, so many folks come from kind of like neurodiverse backgrounds. And people share these incredible stories with me all the time of like, I didn't know I was, you know, I wasn't diagnosed until I was like an adult, right? But now I've been extremely successful because I had this like adversarial relationship with the school system <laughs> that ultimately taught me all of these like coping skills and life skills that, again, might be more valuable than some of the basic academics that you're learning in school, right? Um, and so I think telling that story and just like recognizing, helping parents recognize that that's okay. And like, it, it is, the, the school system has some challenges, right? Like it is not meant to, I, I like to frame it as like celebrating each kid's unique learning style, because that ultimately is what it is. Um, the common classroom is built for one very specific type of learning style. And if a child is not thriving in that learning style, that doesn't mean that that child is not set up for success later in life. Right. And so that's where with parallel, we really try to reframe it. The work that we're doing with both the schools and parents and the students themselves of like, how do we make this child really thrive both in the classroom and then really set them up for success post classroom, because ultimately like the, 
that is what school is supposed to do. You know, set you up to be the most productive member of society and um, to be, you know, a self-sufficient person upon graduation. And having the confidence is just as important in my mind as like the hard skills. Yeah, the purpose uh, of our system should be to help all our children do their best, learn lessons, and have fun. And we have a ways to go uh, in that reformation. And uh, to that end, it's companies like Parallel. And there's no doubt why you're in the 30 under 30 class for uh, 2024. Congratulations for all the incredible efforts that you're putting forth to so many. And every single kid like Mike, uh, who is being shamed or just parents are lost because they don't know why, quote unquote, their kid's not doing well um, or even worse, putting labels, which, by the way, if you're a parent or a teacher and you're using labels, why don't you just leave it for your shampoo? Keep it there. It's the only place that it belongs. Uh, but we have people, thank goodness, like Diana helping us. Founder and CEO of Parallel, ParallelLearning.com. If you have questions, about your own situation or your child's situation, a great resource helping so many of us today understand why and how our system can be improved. Diana, thanks for joining us on Office Hours. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Great job. Keep up the great work. Thanks. All right. It's a party, but what's a party without, without Marty? Marty. <laughs> Marty Strong is here and he is strong and uh, we all should thank Marty for his service uh, and everything he's done uh, to help all of us now as an entrepreneur, author, and speaker, former Navy SEAL officer, helping us understand the consistent, persistent pursuit of our own potential with the freedoms, options, opportunities, touches a favor that this country provides uh, to all of us and for all of us. Welcome to Office Hours, Marty. David, Mike, great to see you again. Great to have you back. And uh, I want to talk about the term visionary. So many people, when I tell them, you know, Marty Strong's coming on, they're like, oh, you know, Mar Marty's a visionary. And, you know, I worked with one of the greatest visionaries in sports. Uh, his name's Lee Steinberg. In fact, that's why I was blessed enough to be hired as the CEO of Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment, not because I was a frustrated athlete, lawyer, unskilled athlete, uh, frustrated athlete wanting to do something in sports, but because Lee was a visionary and he actually saw the future of sports in venture, he saw the future of sports in technology, and you have a great perspective or vision for strategic leadership. Um, how do you define uh, these visionaries, as you say in your new book? So it's uh, a nice tee up. Thank you. I, I, I'm a visionary and I haven't even started my full day yet. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, the first thing I think that the premise is intellectual humility. And, and it kind of, that's a theme that runs through all of my books and my speeches, et cetera. Because if you can find yourself in a position where you can be humble, where you can actually kind of strip away both the positives and the negatives, then, you know, the failures that you just experienced that are bringing you down and closing up um, your options and your mind's getting kind of tunnel vision, or you're aggressively and optimistically wrong because you've had some great successes in the past, but they aren't necessarily going to flop forward into the new, the new event, the new challenge. So I think the first thing is, is you just have to start with humility. You have to strip away all your um, preconceptions, all your, your notions of what you think the day is going to bring. 
what you think a particular challenge really represents. And then you set yourself up for the next phase, which is intellectual curiosity. And that's basically the ability to, you know, I see Mike's got double stacks of books back there. You know, if you're a lifelong learner, you're probably somebody who's naturally curious. If you aren't naturally curious, why would you look at anybody's thoughts? Why would you entertain anybody else's ideas? So by being intellectually curious and truly intellectual curious means you've met the first stage of the humility, you're able to absorb all kinds of insights from all kinds of different venues and different sources, 360 degrees outside of your normal kind of the, your team, which is like standing inside of an elevator, breathing each other's air. Right. So psychologically, mentally, emotionally, that team influences you. So look outside of that. And then that sets you up for intellectual intellectual creativity. And really vision is about creativity. Vision is about seeing what doesn't exist. Vision is about being comfortable with making assumptions or, or drawing up assumptions that aren't based on the past necessarily. And, you know, in one of my books, the subtitle is uh, strategic leadership in the optimization in the age of optimization. And the reason I kind of put those in uh, opposing positions, what I found is technology has enabled us and management training in, in colleges and then further on in, in businesses have, have kind of forced us into micromanaging and measuring of the past. So more and more and more, everybody's vision isn't narrow. There's just no vision at all. They're all looking in the rearview mirror. They're all looking at whatever's happening in the past. They're measuring it. They're reporting it with all kinds of great dashboards and spreadsheets and, and analytics and all that. But they have no idea that they're about to have a train you know, smack them right in the forehead because they're not looking up and they're not looking forward. So you have to have that um, creative approach. Those, those three steps get you in that right mindset. And I think that's probably the premise to allowing yourself to have vision and to think, to think forward. Nani, your resume is so incredible. You know, a retired Navy SEAL, black belt at Muay Thai, you went, suffered cancer, went through cancer twice. When you talked about assumptions, you did it so well. Transition. I mean, the Navy SEAL isn't, like I always say, everyone's the toughest guy at the barbecue, but being a UFC fighter is different. I've got friends that are Navy SEALs. This is legit. This is it. This is real training. When you make the transition into like civilian life, you talk about assumptions. Is it hard? Because I've got friends in Navy SEALs and they're really driven. Sometimes they're a little too driven and they just push, push, push. How do you find that? You found this beautiful balance of being open to learning everything. So how do you do that? Because a lot of us go in one direction, assume, 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 from the past, but we can't be flexible. How do you how do you how do you navigate that process? Well, part of the Navy SEAL experience is is exercising creativity, believe it or not, because in the olden times, the special operations missions were not set piece uh, tasks inside of a fixed war zone that went on for years and years, such as Vietnam in the in the later part of Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq, where every day you wake up, you know what the rules of football are, you know who your adversary is, and you go out there and you kind of do the the same footwork, the same, the same choreography. Uh, a standard special operations mission is special. It's unique. It's different. It's not conventional. That means the assumptions may or may not even be presented to you. So there may be lots of gaps in your information, lots of gaps in your knowledge from, from topography, geography, uh, the, adversarial's the adversary's capabilities, what your capabilities are, what can actually assist you, help you when you actually do the thing. So you start learning as a young SEAL basically how to plan and execute a future event in a vacuum of solid information. And so that prepares you and trains you over years of being comfortable with that. 
so you, you don't feel like you have to have all the facts laid out for you to move forward or even to think forward. The biggest shock for me in transitioning was I had one assumption that under, underlay 20 years of being in the SEAL teams. That was that everybody had my back. They were all in it together. Everybody was very, very smart, smart people. You have to have a high IQ to get into the SEAL teams in the first place. And they were all committed to succeeding. And they didn't, they didn't quit. If, if something fell apart, so work the problem, figure it out, right? I get out and I find that's not the mindset. <laughs> I mean, I went in at 17, so I was pretty much formed and forged by that, by that, that, uh, that team experience. And I found that, you know, hey, it's five o'clock, I'm out of here. Uh, no, I'm not working on weekends. I don't care if the project's falling apart. I've got, you know, a soccer game to go to. And I was dumbfounded. I mean, I was just, it was a, it was a culture shock of the reality of the commercial civilian environment compared to this like, you know, Templar night focused, you know, God and country mission brotherhood thing. And that took me, a, that, that takes a lot of the guys who were in special forces for sure. A lot of time, years, sometimes, sometimes we don't ever really get over it completely. I, it still hits me once in a while when, you know, I ask an accountant to work late or, you know, because I'm a CEO and they look at me like I have three heads and I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can't expect that. You know, that's not an expectation. So that so that's an assumption I carried forward as baggage. And I led that way and I managed that way and I expected things to happen based on my own pre my old premise by looking backward and expecting it was going to happen and it didn't. And it took about two or three years for me. And I, I think I'm. And I, and I I tell other guys that were in the military, this is the reality. You're, you're, it's like coming out of the NFL or something, right? You're coming out of being, you know, a showcase high-end professional athlete, but you were probably a showcase high-end athlete in college and in high school and in peewee league, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden you're not. Now you're just a guy at Walmart, you know, who can't find what he's looking for because his wife said you better get it, right? You're just a regular Joe. So, yeah, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely a psychological comeuppance that you have to deal with. <laughs> Real quick, last question, because I need to know, you have your new book, uh, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Um, and I'm curious about that age of optimization, uh, unique in its aspect that uh, this somehow uh, creates a new strategy of being a leader, because we have, I assume, uh, virtual assistants, technologies, AIs, other things that are constantly putting pressure on us to do things faster uh, and better. Um, what type of strategies are you talking about in the book to help us with this pressure that I believe you're defining as optimization? I don't, I don't demonize optimization. I say it's a tool and I kind of use the old infantry analogy. You're, you're all coordinated and straight and you got, you know, clean shaven and, and well-fed and you're at the, the battle line and you have to go take a hill. The hill is a key objective. You tell everybody what the objective is. You rush across the, the battlefield. You take casualties. It takes you maybe hours, maybe days. You take the hill and you're all disorganized and everything's all messed up. And, and so you have to organize when you're on the hill. You have to get prepared for a counterattack and you have to drink and eat and make sure you have enough ammo and get yourself organized and settled again. To me, Vision is I have to take that hill, identifying the hill, coming up with the battle plan or your tactics to cross that, that zone in between where you are and that objective. You take the hill, and, and if you do it in a very dramatic and, and dynamic way, you're going to disrupt whatever the heck you look like at the starting line. That's okay. 
then get to that hill. And that's when optimization kicks in. Lock it down, tighten it up, measure it, take a deep breath, and start looking for another hill. That is an amazing strategy in itself. If you want to learn lessons, do your best and have fun, get out of your own way. Take it from Marty Strong, be nimble, martystrongbenimble.com. Check out his new book, Be Visionary, Utilizing a Strategic Strategy in the Age of Optimization to do your best, learn lessons, and have fun. Marty, promise me you'll come back again. Your insights and inspiration are unmatched or paralleled, no pun intended, for Diana before us. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Great Thank job. You. We appreciate everything. Thank you. All right. It's guys like Marty that give us the freedom, the options, opportunities, touches of favor in our lives uh, that are incredible. I still am a great American, and I know you weren't born here, but you must still appreciate how amazing this country is. Uh, oh, Mikey D, what's your takeaway of the day? Everyone, what I found beautiful about today is everyone had such a deep, compelling story that had the vulnerability to tell it. And Jimmy said the most beautiful thing, silent army. And if we tell our story and we're vulnerable, that silent army, we give them permission to reach their potential and be great. So, you know, don't be afraid of your past. Be open about your past. Talk about your past. Learn from your mistakes and pay it forward and, you know, inspire others. I love it. My takeaway is the overall objective I have for my own children. And I think all three of our guests are helping people do three things. Uh, to, one, do their best without listening to other people's opinion. To learn lessons. and to have fun, uh, to learn to love what you're doing, even if it's a struggle. All three of our uh, friends today struggled immensely, but they learned to enjoy the pursuit of their potential through having fun. So do your best, learn lessons, have fun. That's my takeaway of the day. That's why I hang out with Mikey D, Diamond Fuel's finest, a dose of positivity. He is amazing. I will see you soon, I hope, my friend. Safe travels. We're doing a VIP dinner, by the way, March 13th in Orange County. So uh, I'll come down that March 13th. Perfect. Yeah, we'll have you speak or show off your your goods. So thank you so much for joining me. Love you, mate. Say travel. Mikey D. Mike Diamond. Check out the dose of positivity. Check out Diamond Fuel, my man. All right. We are in New Jersey today. I'm off to Einstein's laboratory. I got my setup here. I got my, that's right, Einstein socks. I have my Einstein pen. Look at that handsome dude. Um, so I'm ready to go to Einstein's lab. It's right next door to Opperman's lab. I'm going to check out the frequency of the biggest and best brand ever created, Albert Einstein. Uh, he's the only brand I know that Jesus is a big brand, but it's not specific. If you say genius, 99.9% .9 of the people on earth no matter where you are, is going to say Einstein. That's a powerful brand. And then you can build a brand looking like this. Oh, my goodness. You can do anything. That is the expression of God. That is genius. So we're in New Jersey today. Come to our meetup. Uh, we are all sold out on our VIP dinner. 3.30 p.m. Uh, come meet us across from Princeton at the Speakeasy there, at 45 Spring Street, uh, after we are... Uh, Touring and speaking in the labs, Oppenheimer and uh, Einstein. And then tomorrow we'll be at the Pyramid Club, 8 a.m. Come and join us. The 
breakfast and learn. We still would love to have anyone come and join us in Philly in the morning, then Chicago in the afternoon, meet up at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel at, uh, as well at 3.30 p.m. So really looking forward to seeing everybody. Uh, we'll be in Madison, Wisconsin after that. And then back into Orange County at SoFi Stadium, then in Las Vegas. Hopefully we'll see Jimmy Hayes Nelson, Mikey D, and others in Las Vegas. We will be filming season six of Office Hours, VIP dinner there as well. If you're not moving and grooving, then you're not at our frequency. We're moving and grooving every single day. If you want to know where we are, get notified the same way I get notified where I am. It's 949-298-2905. Join our text community. Uh, thank you, everyone, this week for everything. Chicago, New York, all the amazing people. Victor Cruz gave us a brief surprise yesterday and came for dinner and spoke to our uh, world champion Giants fans class. I want to thank him and well as the Einstein of Wall Street. We're down speaking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and a big shout out to my two producers and our new producer assistant, Max Gigi. And of course, the amazing Reluca. Thank you all. Remember, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Hopefully, we'll see you at one of our uh stopovers here in New Jersey, New York, Philly, Chicago, Madison, SoFi, and Vegas. I'll talk to you soon. Have fun.